It's time now for Money Matters with the Lewis family, Doug, Linda, and Deborah, owners of Lewis Financial Management, a Raleigh-based family-owned financial planning firm providing investment and financial planning advice since 1983. Doug and Deborah are certified financial planners, CFPs, who can answer any of your questions about investments, retirement planning, and estate planning. Why not call Doug, Linda, and Deborah right now at 919-860-9783 with your financial planning questions. That's 919-860-9783. Now, here's Doug, Linda, and Deborah. Investments offered through SFA Inc. Investment advice through Lewis Financial Management. SFA Inc. and Lewis Financial Management are not related entities. And we are the Lewis family, ready to answer your questions tonight. This is Linda Lewis, and thank you for joining us on Money Matters on News Radio 680 WPTF. And I'm Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. And I'm Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. And we're here to answer your questions for the next hour. Or Jean, how can I help you? This is Doug Lewis with Money Matters. I need to know how you can sell real estate and avoid capital gains tax. All right. Well, let me find out a little bit first about the real estate and how you're doing it. And then I'll tell you how you can avoid the capital gains tax and selling real estate. How old are you, Jean? 48. You're 48 years old. And are you married or single? Married. Married. How about your income? 55,000. All right, 55,000. And what's the size of the piece of real estate you want to sell? Oh, probably 110,000. $110,000. Did you acquire or did you get this property by inheritance or by gift? I bought it. How much did you pay for it when you bought it? About 55,000. $55,000. All right. Have you had any improvements on the property? Uh, minimal. Is there any mortgage on the property? About 15000 The first thing I need to tell you is to do this strategy, there can be no mortgage on the property. So you'll have to find a way to pay off the mortgage first. Okay? Okay. But with only $15,000 mortgage, this may be doable for you. You might want to take out a home equity loan on your home to get the 15000 off of this. Right. It has been depreciated. It has been depreciated. For about uh, 12, 12, 13 years. Do you happen to know how much depreciation each year is being claimed? Uh, no. All right. Well, let's say for sake of argument that you've depreciated it, meaning you've shown tax depreciation on your tax return for 12 years. And so now you've reduced the basis of this property, let's say, to only $20,000. Okay? okay. We would find that out by looking at your tax return. If you were to sell this property today, Uncle Sam would take the adjusted basis, that would be that 20000 Subtract it from what you sold it for, that's the 110000 and you would have a $90,000 capital gain. That's called the long-term capital gain. Right. This capital gain is then used to figure how much taxes you would have to pay, and then you would go ahead and keep out of your $110,000 sa- uh, sale price, you would keep $78,000, okay? okay? I'm sure you've already figured this much out yourself. Now, you would go ahead and invest that $78,000, let us say, to support yourself. And in today's market, you could probably go ahead and get about $5,500 a year. Or you could get an income stream of maybe $458 a month. Now, let's look at your alternatives. If you were to establish what we call a charitable remainder unit trust, what you basically do is you create a trust in which you write the uh, the terms that after your death, and you can also say after your husband's death also if you like, anything left in this trust will go to the chari- to a charity of your choice or a university or any nonprofit organization like a church or Salvation Army or whatever. You've set up this trust. You now transfer the title of your property to the trust. The trust now owns it. You with me so far? Yes. The trust now turns around and sells it to your buyer for the $110,000. You with me so far? Yes. All right. The same buyer that was going to buy it directly from you bought it from this trust. He got it for the $110,000 just like he would have gotten it before from the $110,000. The difference is 
that the 110000 sits inside a charitable trust and there are no taxes paid whatsoever. The reason there are no capital gains taxes paid is because the trust agreement says that one day, even if it's 50 years from now, what's left in this trust will go to a charity and charities don't pay capital gains taxes. Okay, you with me so far? All right. At this point, we have the entire $110,000 sitting in this charitable trust. You might say, well, whoopee, what good does that do me? What it does for you is you also write in that trust agreement that all of the income coming off of this trust comes to me and my husband for the rest of our lives. Well, now we have the income coming off of 110000 instead of the income coming off of 71000 which means that your monthly check, for example, using the same assumptions, instead of $458 a month, would now be $650 a month about a third more. Right. Now, the key to this strategy is who controls this $110,000 that's sitting in this trust? Would you agree with me? Yes. That's probably one of your concerns, right? Right. All right. We can establish such a trust with you being the trustee. Really? Yes. Isn't that wonderful news? Yes. Now you are giving it from your right hand to your left hand. Right. You as the individual owner are giving it to you as the trustee of the trust, and you as the trustee of the trust is selling it to your buyer, and because you are not selling it individually, but the trust is selling it through the trustee, there are no capital gains taxes paid whatsoever. Isn't that nice? Yes. Let me ask you one other question. Yes. Do you have children? No. No children. So this works out perfectly for you. Yeah. We, we can construct this trust in such... By the way, there is a way to even replace the gift for you if, if you had children, but I won't deal with that for you. But for any other listeners, you don't even have to worry about the 110000 going to the church or the university. We can even find a way to get that to go back to the kids after you all die also. But for your case, this works perfectly for you because we can set this thing up in such a way that we can build all sorts of bells and whistles into it. We call it a NIMCRUT. It's a net income makeup provision trust. And in this case here, we established this trust that has this $110,000 in it now, and we write the rules of the trust to say that, yes, you get all the income from the trustee, namely yourself, but you also... If you don't get a certain amount of income in any one year, and that certain amount is written into your trust agreement, let's say it's 9%, and if your trust only produces from the investments you make 7% in one year, for example, then you build up an IOU account. Now, when we run an illustration looking at this under various assumptions, we can see 10, 15, 20 years from now, you might have an IOU account inside that trust which might allow you to dip in and take out an extra twenty-five, thirty, forty thousand dollars at one time, because the trust has this makeup provision. That's the M in Nimcrut. That makeup provision is building up a make-believe IOU account, so that if the principal of the trust, let's say, gets up to be three hundred or four hundred thousand, and you've just been getting a certain amount of income, you can dip in and take out thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars, whatever is made into that makeup account. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. It's an ideal vehicle, and uh, the whole key to these things, which is not very well understood or known by many people, is that you can be your own trustee. Well, that sounds wonderful. It is wonderful. I really like them. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you how wonderful they are. I've actually done one for a family member myself personally, and uh, it's, a, it's, it's working beautifully. As a matter of fact, I've done a number of these this past year. You have to have an administrator that reports to the IRS all of the accounting for the trustee. And that's your protection that the IRS never says that you dipped your hand into the honey pot, into the, into the honey pot. You know what I'm saying? Because you are the trustee and you are also the donor and you are also the income beneficiary of this trust. So you're occupying three different positions, but uh, I love it very much. And that's the way that, that's the way that we can go in and avoid the capital gains tax on real estate. The number at the office, Gene, if you'd like to call, is 8727000. Yeah, 8727000. And we're in Raleigh, so give us a call. And, uh, pardon me? 
Yeah. Just call and ask for Linda, and she'll go ahead and set up an appointment, and we'll go ahead and we'll take it from there, however you'd like to go. We'll actually work with some real numbers, and we'll show you exactly what. Oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you, you get one other benefit I forgot to mention. Believe it or not, you actually get a tax deduction for doing it in the year that you do it because it's a charitable contribution. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Gene. Well, Doug, what's new in the area of retirement planning? I think a lot of people are wondering when they should start saving for retirement. Right. And, you know, people also wonder, what about investment risk? In light of retirement planning. Exactly. I see what you're saying. Well, the longer you have to retire, Linda, generally, the longer between now and retirement, generally, the more risk you can afford to take to achieve a higher return. Now, that means a greater investment in things like stock mutual funds, which traditionally have outperformed over time more conservative investments like CDs. Many certified financial planners strongly recommend that even when you retire, you keep a portion of your money in stock mutual funds or other growth investments to offset the ravages of long-term inflation. Because don't forget, you may be retired for 25 years or more. And you can also offset some of this risk by diversifying your investments among several asset categories such as stock, mutual funds, bond mutual funds, and money market accounts. And if you work with a certified financial planner, that individual can help you put together an investment portfolio that will fit your goals and your risk level as well. Well, Doug, there are some listeners that have called that I have spoken with that wonder uh, in pre-retirement planning, what if I don't have enough time to save for retirement? Many people don't plan ahead for retirement, but even if you do find yourself in that situation and you don't have enough time and retirement is right on top of you, there are steps you can take with the help of your financial planner. For example, you're required to begin withdrawing funds from your tax-deferred accounts like IRAs at a certain age, but you do have withdrawal options, and your certified financial planner can calculate the best option for withdrawing these funds in order to stretch your retirement dollars. And what if, what if an individual just doesn't have enough time to save for retirement? What else do we need to look at? Well, you can find some new sources of income. For example, the RAM. You know, the reverse annuity mortgage, Lynn, is one that you and I like very much. Uh, we call them hiccups. Uh, the home equity loans and the RAMs, they're called. Reverse annuity mortgages on your home. You can sell a vacation home, get rid of it. Or other assets that you may have to uh, liquidate and turn into liquid. And I guess bottom line is you may have to look at reducing your living expenses or even working part-time. Other listeners want to know, when I retire, should I take my pension money in a lump sum or roll it over into an IRA? Assuming the pension offers the choice, the decision is going to depend on people's personal circumstances and their discipline and their comfort level and their risk tolerance. And special consideration has to be given to tax consequences. You know, do you pay the taxes now or do you pay them later? And, for example, you may want to take the money out as a lump sum and then pay the taxes uh, on it now if you want to use the money to start your own business. And we've heard many that have done that. Yeah, I don't like them doing that. I get really scared when they take their retirement uh, and use it to start a business. But it's a consideration. On the other hand, if you don't need the money immediately, rolling it over into an IRA rollover account will postpone the taxes until you're 70 and a half years old. And at that time... You have to begin withdrawing what's called the minimum distribution amount. And the advantage of doing that is that the longer that you allow the funds to grow tax-deferred, the faster they will grow, and then the more you'll have for your later retirement years. Our number here in Raleigh, uh, if you'd like to give a call, is uh, 872-7000. That's USA 7000. How can I help you, Sam? Well, I wondered if you could say something about how you pick a financial planner. Uh, how you decide who's right for you and uh, what kind of credentials they should have, that sort of thing. Good question, Sam. Yes, I can. First of all, let me tell you who you don't want. Okay. You don't want the guy you play golf with. You don't want your best friend. You don't want your friendly stockbroker. You don't want your friendly insurance agent. You don't want your friendly banker. You don't want somebody who does it for free. You see what I'm saying? Yes. Anybody who says we do financial plans for free, You get what you pay for. You know what I'm saying? The price is right for the quality you're going to get. I understand. Okay? You want someone who charges a fee. You want a fee-based financial planner. Why fee-based? Because they're not doing it for free. I see. 
That's what I just said. If they tell you they're doing it for free, then you haven't got a financial planner. You got a salesperson who's trying to hustle you something, trying to sell you a product and going to commit, get you to buy an insurance policy or a stock or a bond or a mutual fund and get a commission. I see. All right. You want somebody who charges a fee. Number two, you want to ask them for their ADV form. That's the advisor's form, the ADV form. This is crucial. If you ask for an ADV form and he or she does not give you one, then you better run. Okay. Because that means that he has not registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission as a registered investment advisor. Okay. That, that ADV form will be a full disclosure on his educational background, on his fee structure, and also if there are any violations or fines or actions against him. You want to go ahead, first of all, and make sure that you are comfortable that he is educated, knowledgeable. Uh-huh. Number two, you want to make sure, as best you can, that you have a feeling of ethics, that the person feels honest. That's very difficult to do. You want to ask for client references, yeah. and you also want to ask for professional references. Ask for a couple of attorneys or CPAs or other professionals that he has worked with. Ask for a couple of references of clients that you can call. That will give you a feeling of the ethics and the honesty. You can't get that but so much, but that's a gut feel. I think that you should go ahead and make sure you look at a sample financial plan. You want to find out, does the person do ongoing reviews for you? A lot of people call themselves planners and sell a financial plan to you But it's a snapshot plan, computer generated, but there's no ongoing planning. So you want to find out what ongoing planning the person will do and see samples of it. You want to ask him or her, will he or she be handling your case on a regular basis or will you be given to an associate or to an employee? These are the kinds of things and you want to be very open I personally make sure that every client who comes into my office comes with a list of questions ahead of time that they want me to answer. So think about the answers, the questions you want answered about your own situation. What is your situation, Sam? Uh, Well, I'm a professional and uh, I make make what seems to me to be a lot of money and I got it spread around different places. You're not telling me any numbers. I need some numbers, Sam. A financial planner, by the way, who doesn't deal with numbers uh-huh. is not what you want. How much do you make, Sam? Uh, I have a professional corporation. I make a salary of about 120000 All right. You're giving yourself 120000 You've got a PC of your own? Yes. All right. Is your wife employed? Yes. How much does she make? She makes about probably uh, $40,000. $40,000. you have got a family income of 160000 well, we got more than that because some of it stays in the corporation. All right. What do you have in the way of assets right now? How is your investment portfolio structured right now? I have uh, 200000 in a retirement plan. What's the retirement plan in? Then uh, a bank mutual fund. How many, like, is it, how many mutual funds are you in, Sam? I'm, I'm in a balanced mutual fund and one balanced mutual fund. 200000 in one balanced mutual fund? Yes. Bad news. Really? Big mistake. What else do you have? Um, well, I own a, um, an apartment building uh, that generates uh, about five or six hundred dollars a month. How much is the apartment building worth? Uh, I don't know. It, uh, it generates, um, like I said, five or six hundred dollars a month. Clear. Um, it the rent it actually brings in is about eight. Uh, $800 a month, and I figure we pay about $200 a month expense. All right. What do you uh, What do you have in the way of liquid investments of your own? Uh, let's see. I own my office. That's not a liquid investment. Liquid investment. I have about um, uh, 30000 No, I have about, yeah, about 37000 in my corporation, and I have about uh, $45,000 in my personal bank account. In savings? Uh, yeah, savings and, um, yeah, money market account. You need a lot of help, Sam. Really? Yeah. Yeah. What else you got? And then I'll tell you all the things that I see that are wrong. Uh, well, like I said, I own my office. 
I got a couple of IRAs that are worth probably about twenty thousand total. I got a. What do you have the IRAs in? Um, uh, some stocks and some of the sums in the same mutual fund. My others in some of it's in stocks, uh, bonds, uh, various things. Uh, I got um. Yeah, I got some, I got an insurance policy. That How I mean, much is in the IRAs? Twenty thousand. Not twenty thousand. Now let, wh- I got an insurance policy that's, that's worth on paper eighteen, but it cash surrender value is about nine. Um, is there is there a value to the business, Sam? Uh, not not if I'm not in it. Oh, okay. Your living expenses. How much are you spending? What are you What are you What are your living expenses looking like, Sam? Uh, I spend about my salary. All right, now. So you're a high spender. Yeah, that's right. So. Well, I'm seeing what I, I what I don't college. think. I got a boy. I got a kid in college, and I got a uh, a girl in private school. All right. So you're spending ten thousand a month. You're telling me. Yeah. Probably. And you haven't accumulated anything in the way of a personal investment portfolio that I can see at all. Your retirement plan. What is that? A profit sharing plan? Yeah. Your retirement plan is profit sharing. You're 42 years old. You can't touch that until you're 59 and a half because if you do, you'll you'll be hit real bad on it. It's all in one investment, which has no diversification whatsoever. That's a real no-no. That's your qualified money. You also have some other qualified money, an IRA, which is IRA is $20,000, and that's over-diversified. There you've got it spread into tiny little pieces. If you've got stocks and bonds and that same mutual fund, now you're over-diversified there, and you're under-diversified in your other one. As far as your personal portfolio, I don't see anything except $45,000 in a money market account, which is really bad news today. There are a lot of things that the small business owner usually is missing. And the first thing is he does not have an investment portfolio built outside and apart from the business to protect him if his income source from his business suddenly stops. So you start with the living expense needs, you then go ahead and you design a pattern or a financial plan that will address tax planning, cash flow planning, retirement planning, estate planning, educational planning for college, uh, insurance needs analysis planning, and so on. You think that make a difference? Oh, Absolutely. I, I'm telling you, 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 you're in serious trouble. Really? Yeah. I feel pretty secure. Yeah, that's the big danger of the small business owner. He always feels real secure. But I can tell you, uh, it doesn't look good to me. You need some professional help. And you need professional help from someone who's not trying to sell you something. You know what I mean? There is a way to do what you want to do. But you've got to reach out for that need. You wouldn't do brain surgery on yourself. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And you shouldn't do your own will, and you shouldn't do your own financial planning. Okay. You know, it looks like you're really successful, but you got to get some direction for the future, right? Yeah. So write down those questions, and if you want to call us at the office, our number here in Raleigh is area code 919-872-7000, 919-872-7000. And I can send you a packet of information that will help you, you know, get, get yourself organized. Okay. Well, thanks for calling, Sam. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Doug, what's new in the world of investment planning? Well, investment planning. You know, Linda, I think it might be good if we come back to just the basics for a lot of our listeners in trying to figure out exactly what is a mutual fund. Because, you know, Linda, a mutual fund is really an investment company. In other words, it's a company that invests in investments. It invests in stocks and bonds and things like that on behalf of other individuals with common goals, right? Well, I would agree. And to understand mutual funds, let's explore six features about mutual funds. Okay. First is simplicity. In today's complex financial marketplace, mutual funds offer investors a simpler, less expensive, and less time-consuming method of investing in stocks, bonds, and government securities than trading them individually. Investors invest in the fund, and the fund managers invest in the securities. So the first feature is simplicity. Right. Now, the second feature of mutual funds is diversification. 
by pooling different investors' dollars and spreading them over dozens of stocks or bonds, the mutual fund can diversify its holdings. A diversified portfolio reduces risk should some of those investments turn sour and increases the chance of picking up some potential winners. It's the old principle of not putting all your eggs in any one basket. So the second feature of a mutual fund is diversification. A third feature of mutual funds is choice. A mutual fund investor has more options than ever before. There are stock mutual funds, bond mutual funds, government bond mutual funds, tax-free mutual funds to satisfy all outlooks from the most conservative to the most aggressive. Of course, generally speaking, intelligently assumed risk increases the opportunity for greater return. Mutual fund investors select a fund with an investment objective that most closely matches their own. For example, one may want to maximize their current income or maximize long-term growth, or they may want some combination of growth and income. Right. In addition, there are specialized funds, Lynn, which are available these days. For instance, there are funds that invest only in certain geographic regions of the U.S. or of the world, or certain industries like healthcare funds or technology funds or energy funds or bank funds. There are even funds that have adopted certain social criteria for people who only want to invest in areas of the economy designed to help humanity. So the third feature of a mutual fund is choice, big range of choice. The fourth feature of a mutual fund is professional management. Once you've selected a mutual fund with your objectives, the investment decisions are made by the fund managers. These professionals decide when to invest your money. The money managers make these decisions based on extensive outgoing economic research into the financial performance of individual companies or individual bonds, taking into account general economic and market trends. Yeah, and, and that's good, Lynn, because, you know, after analyzing all of this data, then the manager chooses investments that best match the objectives of the fund. And as economic conditions change, the fund may adjust the mix of its investments to adapt either a more aggressive or a more defensive posture. So the fourth feature is professional management, probably the most important feature. The fifth feature of mutual funds is flexibility. While some investors prefer to pick a single fund and stick with it for many years, others look for a family of funds and a number of different mutual funds with different objectives all under the one roof usually fall under the category of a family of funds. Yeah, in a family of funds, investors can switch then from one fund to the other fund as their objectives change. And the nice thing about family of fund investing is there's no commission charges. For example, they might want growth of capital during their early years and then later at retirement want income from their fund. Well, in a family of funds, they might have had a growth fund for years and now with simple telephone call, they can switch to a government bond fund paying monthly checks and there would be no commission charges when they do that switch. Or they might have an interest in international investing and switch to a fund investing in European companies. So the fifth feature is flexibility. The sixth feature of a mutual fund is liquidity. Mutual fund investors can cash in all or part of their shares at any time at the day's price. The fund is always ready to buy back the shares at the net asset value quoted in your daily paper. Basically, mutual funds offer just about something for everyone, whether you've only got $500 or $5 million. So whatever your objectives safety or income or growth or tax savings, mutual funds probably have something for you. These features of a mutual fund itself make make us at least take a look and see, well, that's what a mutual fund is. And for those who aren't real clear, I hope the comments have helped. Well, some people, you'd be surprised, I get people that call in, uh, listeners that call in at the office, and maybe they're participating in some vehicle within their 401k, but they don't understand what it is or how it works. So it is good to come back to the basics. My office number is 872-7000. If I can help you any more, give us a call during the week. What's new in the area of estate planning? Well, Doug, there is such a thing as the living trust. Right. And sometimes people do get a little confused about, should I have a trust or do I need a living trust or what about a will? So let's clarify this a little bit. Okay. and I why, think- does a per- why would a person need a living trust? All right. Let's talk about what a living trust does not do, first of all, because that will clean the air. 
a living trust does not save any income taxes, does not save any estate taxes. It is not a tax shelter strategy at all, as opposed to the charitable trust, which is. A living trust, however, avoids probate after you die. And that means you can move money and you can move the estate faster to your heirs. Number two, it avoids public knowledge, confidentiality, confidentiality. because no one knows. You ever, did you ever look in the, in the, uh, in the, uh, who's died section of the newspaper, the obituary? Right. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, and you ever see it tells State, you. Yeah. When the estate settled and. Yeah. It tells you how much money the people. The value of their estate. Yeah. Who the heirs are. It doesn't even embarrass you sometimes. Look like you're looking at somebody's dirty laundry. Well, I think uh, it's, yeah, it's... A little embarrassing, isn't it? Yeah, and a lot of people don't want their spouse's inheritance to be public knowledge. And that, because that leads them to be prey to a lot of salespeople quickly calling Shortly them and so forth and, and so on. A family right. Member, right. For these reasons, people look to the revocable living trust. And this is a trust we set up during our lifetime. And we say it's revocable, meaning we can change our mind. Now, Doug, sometimes people, I think, get confused thinking, well, if I have a living trust, do I need a will? Yes, we need a will. So the will don't is, think that the living trust will replace the will, right? It's not a will replacement. But if you have done everything perfectly, when you die, if you've transferred everything during your lifetime into your living trust, then there's nothing that your will will have any effect on. The will that we set up for living trust is called a pour-over will. What it says, actually, is that if at my death, there is something that I don't have in my revocable trust, then it will go. I leave it to my revocable trust. So it just catches anything that's not there. Now, everything is owned by this trust. But the trust document itself that we set up has in it instructions, just like a will. It avoids the whole probate process of going down to the courthouse and filing and saying, and giving a notice to the creditors and waiting nine months and all of that. And it is so comfortable knowing that you have that confidentiality. That's the other thing. At, at that very difficult time. Right, because um, the trust assets are not known to the public. Right. A trust is a private document. A will is a public document. Right. I, there's, I speak to literally hundreds of people that call in from the radio show. And sometimes I will pose the question, do you have a living will? If I know that... Someone's possibly, you know, a senior getting up in age or maybe has some kind of a health problem that it is important for you to understand what is a living will. How does it work? And to make sure you, you sign it, right? The health care power of attorney. Well, now let's not confuse the two. Don't confuse the living will and the health care power of attorney. The living will, you're right, says that if I become a vegetable and there is no chance for recovery, if I become vegetative is the language in most living wills then I, and there's no chance for recovery, then I do not want to be kept on artificial life support. That's a living will. But the health care power of attorney is different. The health care power of attorney is giving decision-making. Maybe I do want to have surgery. Maybe I don't want to have surgery. Maybe I do want to have medication. Maybe I don't want to have medication. It takes those decisions away from the doctor in the hospital and puts them in the hands of someone who will make those decisions. When it's a husband and wife, usually you give that decision-making to the spouse. To the mm-hmm. spouse. So we do want to have a health care power of attorney and we want to have a living will. Excellent. Uh, so that's the advantages of the living trust, the revocable living trust. It avoids probate. It assures confidentiality. And it also eliminates the cost of probate. You don't have to go through the heavy legal fees of having attorneys go through the probate process. Writing letters and... Uh, I mean, that's that's a real issue there. So if you're listening this evening and you have some estate planning questions, write them down. I'll be happy to either send you some information or discuss it with you further. And you can call me at the office. And the number is 872-7000. That's USA 7000. And I'll be happy to do what I can to answer your questions. Make sure you work with someone that's qualified that can answer those questions and get those things taken care of. Well, Doug, why don't you explain what the Pay Yourself First plan involves? Okay. Let's take a simple case of a person who wants to accumulate for the future, either for retirement or for funding college education or for any major uh, change in life down the road, and they don't know how to get it in place. They discover that there's just too much month and not enough money. 
and they keep thinking at the end of every month, whatever's left over, they're going to go ahead and save for the future. But there's just always nothing left over. And so the, the secret to mastering this process is we will pay ourselves first and live on what's left instead of pay our, everybody else first and pay ourselves last with what's left. So you begin at the beginning of the month setting aside a certain amount and that is drafted and sent over into a mutual fund of your choice and your expenses that you live off of go through the rest of the month. And of course, there's a lot of discretionary expenses that people have choices, but they make sure at the beginning of every month that fixed amount is sent into a mutual fund. And I agree that uh, now's the time. Get yourself on a plan and begin getting in a program where you can pay yourself first. Right, Doug? Yeah, it definitely works. You know that, what's the name of that book that I like so much? Uh, The Wealthy Barber. Right, right. The Wealthy Barber. Now, that book there really has a phenomenal message to tell about this method of accumulating wealth on a pay-yourself-first methodology. I'd say a Canadian financial planner wrote that book. Tells about the little... Uh, backwoods town in Canada where the guru, the financial expert in town, is the barber himself. And if you want to know the secret to accumulating ma- uh, vast amounts of wealth, you have to go get a haircut and sit in his barber chair. And in his barber chair, he tells all the secrets. But basically, the secrets revolve around this pay-yourself-first plan, how it works, and how you will accumulate as he, the wealthy barber, accumulated. Well, I agree, Doug. And if you are interested in The Wealthy Barber, the book that Doug just mentioned, you can call us at our Raleigh office in North Carolina at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000, and we'll be happy to uh, see that you can get a copy of The Wealthy Barber. All right, Doug, let's take another call. Don, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you? How are you doing, Doug? Yeah. Joy, y'all show. Well, thank you very much. I've got a question for you. My wife and I are, are thinking about purchasing our first home, uh-huh. and I wanted to find out about it, about whether we should go with a 15-year mortgage or a 30-year mortgage. We figure we'll be in the house five or six years. Or, or Let's maybe- get a few facts, and maybe we can walk through it together. Okay. Uh, let's see. How old are you, Don? 29. 29. You both employed? Yes. All right. What's your income? 70000 Husband seventy thousand. Wife's income? Both of us together. Oh, what's the husband's income? Thirty-five. Thirty-five, and the wife's income also thirty-five. Right. No children. No children. Okay. Uh, expenses. Well, what are y'all? What are your living expenses now without the house? Um, uh, I guess seven hundred dollars for apartment, and then we have a school loan about three hundred and fifty, and then car loans about five hundred. I like these people, Linda. They don't spend any money on food. They must be very thin people. Very thin. Very skinny. Okay. So no grocery bills, huh? Plus grocery bills. Okay. No eating out. And eating and videos. Out. No. All right. So no. What I'm talking about is is all of your expenses. What do you What do you spend in a year's time? Vacations, clothing, gifts, food, everything. Um. That's. I would say I, I think our our monthly expenses are probably about two. $2,000. Okay. So basically, you can live on one fam- on, on one of your incomes and save the other. Yeah, that's what we're trying to do. Okay, that's good. All right. Now, uh, what have you accumulated so far with all these extra savings? Well, we've been trying to pay off my school loan. And we've, oh. we've, this, this past year, we paid off about 15000 on that. All right. So you got fifty. How much do you have left on school loans? 20000 All right. So you have 20000 remaining on the school loans. And... Uh, now, are you saying that you haven't you haven't accumulated anything yet? Well, we've we've um, we have uh, CDs. We've got about nine thousand dollars in CDs. Okay, nine thousand in CDs. Anything else? And then we have uh, savings account of about five thousand. Five thousand in and savings. Gonna, that was going to be used for a down payment on a house. All right, and let's see what else do we have? Any retirement plans? Uh, we've got an IRA, and that's about twenty seven hundred dollars. All right. Any retirement plans at work offered to you? Yes. Uh, my wife is, I think, about $100 a month. So she, what is it, 401k or right. 403b plan? 401k. 401k plan. All right. Now, you're getting ready to go and buy your first house. Right. And how much is the house? We, we, we've just been looking. We've been looking in the around $120,000 range. $120,000 home. And uh, out of curiosity, let me see. Well, what, why are you going to buy a house now? Is there a particular reason? 
we just felt like it would be a good investment. Okay. So the basic reason you're buying the house is as an investment. Right. And what are your rent right now? $670. Right. You said so. $670 a month. You're fortunate that you're able to live off of one income because that allows you to plug into what Einstein called the eighth wonder of the world, which is the laws of compound interest. Right. Now, there is a wonderful book that I like to recommend that people get called The Wealthy Barber. And if you'll call my office during the week, Linda will be able to get you a copy. And if not, I, um, you can pick them up at most of the bookstores in town, I believe. They're in paperback now. But The Wealthy Barber talks about the ability to go ahead and accumulate over a long term large amounts of wealth. So that's the first option available to you. Second option available to you, in other words, what to do with your excess. Right. Second thing you can do is you can pay off your student loans. Yeah. And third thing you can do is go buy a house. What would you recommend? Well, first of all, uh, wealth accumulation should be the ultimate goal because wealth accumulation ultimately will support you. In other words, you should try to have a wealth accumulation that will produce an income to support you, and that's called financial independence. So what you do is you start by looking at your living expenses, and let's say that your living expenses are 2000 a month or 24000 a year, and you say, well, let me see, 10 years from now, uh, if that continues to go up at 3.5%, and I'm spending 24000 a year now, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, that means I'm going to need 34000 a year 10 years from now to support my present lifestyle, and that means I would need about $485,000 accumulated in 10 years to produce... 34000 a year income, and I could quit working if I chose to, even though I don't choose to. That's the goal, wealth accumulation for financial independence. Now, once you look at it that way, then you go and you say, all right, I've got two other things that compete for my time and for my money. Well, my, not my, my time, my money. One, the student loans. Well, the student loans are not going to accumulate any wealth for you. All they're going to do is pay your debt. Right. So I'm not real fa in, in, in favor of trying to go ahead and get uh, use all your 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 available excess to pay off your loans. I'd much rather that you be accumulating wealth in a going into mutual funds on a monthly basis and uh, letting the minimum be paid down on the student loans. As far as the home, the home as an investment is a lousy deal. Homes are not investments. Uh, homes are use assets, just like Oriental rugs uh, are not investments. They're use assets, and a lot of things that people are sold today are sold as investments when they're not really investments, they're use assets. It's something you're going to use. If you try to make it an investment, it turns out to be a lousy investment. It does not compete with any other investment because you couldn't take, because you, you don't have any compound rate of return on your real estate and to sell your home, to turn it into cash, you got to be out on the street again. So it's not an investment. Never consider your home an investment. Your home is a use asset. If you were to buy a home, you should have a 30-year mortgage because your payment is less. Well, as soon as you say, I'm going to have a 30-year mortgage to have a lower payment, and why do I want a lower payment? So that I can invest more in my mutual funds or my, or my, uh, my investment plan. Then right away, the question is, well, I'm not paying down my debt very much on my home. And so I'm really paying the bank. You see what I'm saying? Yes. So either way, unless there's a compelling reason that you're just sick and tired of that apartment, you got to get out and your family's growing, I would recommend stay in the apartment, get a nice apartment if you need to, but don't take on another debt of $100,000 or $115,000 more debt thinking it's an investment when it's basically no more than another apartment or a condo or whatever you've bought. It's a use asset. And I would aggressively go ahead and get into wealth accumulation. Uh, and I would do it in a pay-yourself-first mode. Uh, Linda and I like to recommend... Well, how do we do that, Linda? We do that all the time, right? Well, you, at, at the beginning of the month, you go ahead and lay aside a certain amount for you and your wife. Right. Pay yourself first. Right. Pay yourself first before you pay any of the other bills. And what you want to do is you want to compute what your living expenses are in paper subtract it from your income, and what's left over, that needs to be automatically drafted from your checking account straight into the mutual fund that you choose, 
and you will watch it accumulate and compound in a phenomenal way over time. Okay. See, we always look at it from, from the rear end. We always say, well, okay, we've got all these expenses, and what's left over we'll save. But then usually you end up running out, right? Yes. Uh, and then, or, or maybe you've gone out for pizzas too much in, during the month or rented too many videos or gone to too many movies or whatever. But people end up spending what they brought in. But once you get in the habit of saving... At the beginning of the month. At the beginning of the month, it's almost as if your savings is an expense, so to speak. You know what I mean? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, because then at the end of the month or at the end of six months, you'll say, hey, we've accumulated this much and it's grown this much because, you know, whatever the market's done. But then you'll feel better. (laughs) You watch it over a year's time and you will be absolutely amazed what happens. And by the way, as far as your $9,000 in CDs and your $5,000 in savings, CDs are savings. So don't confuse the two of them. Both of them are lousy investments. They're savings. And so he should have an emergency fund, yes. Yeah. Emergency fund of of cash. How much of an emergency fund? Well, you should have between three and six months of living expenses. But if you have no children and you can support yourself on on one income, then I would definitely say stay with three months. Okay. Uh, so get your living expenses, multiply times three, keep that in a savings account or a money market account, and the extra, use that to start your mutual fund investment plan. And then have the monthly pay yourself first amount go right into it. And you could probably put in, a, I'll bet you could get almost $2,000 a month going into it. That would be fantastic. Oh, it would be really nice. Yeah, you get a hold of that book, The Wealthy Barber, and it'll really make you convert out of you. Now, I didn't want Doug to to, to burst your bubble or anything, because people need to have dreams. And surely, you, you know, y'all are young, and you, you've got, I would think, stable jobs. And um, so you want to get home, but your debt will always be there. Right now, determine what's most important to you. And, and you'll be able to, you'll be able to, to get a home in the future, especially if you're, you know, down the road you have children, right? That's where, yeah, that makes sense. That's when we should be looking for a home. Right, right. When but, there's a purpose um, behind it. Instead of an, don't look at it as an investment, but look at it as there's a purpose behind us buying a home. Right, okay. right. So call the office and I'll be happy to send you that book. That number here in Raleigh is 872-7000. That's USA 7000. Thank you. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for calling, Don. Okay, let's take Paul's call. Paul, Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you? Uh, yes, I'm uh, planning to uh, make a withdrawal from a 4K. How are you going to do that? And, uh, well... Are you leaving Are you leaving your employment? No, no. I'm still employed and plan to be, hopefully, a while longer. Okay. <laughs> um, but I to make a withdrawal from my 401k and I uh, wanted to know what was the best way for me to uh, minimize my tax burden. Well, you can't make a withdrawal from a 401k. Well, you can if it's vested. And in this particular instance, it's vested, so I can, I can, I can make a withdrawal. Must not be a 401k plan then. Must be something other than a 401k. Well, it Must be either profit sharing or a pension. Well, something like that, I, I assume. But once you get uh, past a certain amount of money that's vested, you are allowed to borrow. I mean, not well, borrow, a 401k, uh, you're always 100% vested because a 401k is your own money. In other words, it's, it's a salary reduction where you've said, I don't want my salary, put it away from me. That's what a 401k... Okay, well, this is, this is, the, this is the plan where they, uh, they match up to like 6%. Right. Okay, that's 401k, right? Well, the salary contribution part okay. that you've contributed... Yes. That, that, that you're always 100% vested in that. That's, that's a 401k plan. There may be a vesting portion, I mean, a, a matching portion by the employer. Right. Which the employer has the right to say, you know, you don't own it if, if you quit or get fired and, and before a certain length of time. So the employer portion could have matching restrictions, I mean, uh, vesting yes. restrictions on it. Yeah, it does. In other words, I can't, I can't withdraw all of it, but I can withdraw up to a certain amount. How much is in there? Uh, over 100k. So why are you taking any out? Uh, purchase a home. How much are you going to take out? About 80. All right, you're going to take 80,000 dollars. So 80,000 dollars is going to show up on your income tax return as income. Right. That's going to be in addition to your. How much is your salary? Uh, 50. All right. So now you got 130,000 of income. Is your wife working? No. Okay. So you're going to be taxed at the rate of 130,000 dollars income. Are, are you aware of that? Well. You see what I'm saying? 
I didn't think it was that much. Oh, yeah, that, that, that's, that, that is a real no-no. I don't think you should ever do that. Okay. <laughs> I guess what I was wondering is, is there not, how much are you putting down on this house? Uh, I was planning to put down as much as I could get out of there. Only I mean, minimize. Well, let's back up. How much you, is, is the uh, house, house that you're buying? Uh, 225 And what $225,000 house on a 50000 income? Pardon? You've only got a $50,000 income and you're buying a $225,000 yeah, house? Yeah, I'm also selling my house. Yeah, yeah, but you're you're asking for trouble. That's too much house for somebody at your income level. Well, anyway, I, what I wanted, all I wanted to find out from you folks was just, uh, you know, what what kind of penalties I would get well, if I, I withdraw it. I I hope I gave you the 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 answers. I'm sorry to have to give you the bad news. My advice is don't buy a two hundred twenty five thousand dollar house. Don't take money out of your four hundred one k. That's one of the worst things you can do, and give half of it to the government. I. Uh, so you want to look at your cash flow. I mean, yeah, so you're selling your current house, and, and what's the value of the current house? Probably one, 120 Uh-huh. And uh, unless your wife's going to be working, that's a lot of Well, I've got commitment. a lot of equity in my house. Yeah. It doesn't matter. You're going but, from a $120,000 house to a $225,000. I, I understand. I understand Boy. where you're coming from. And, I know and, then, what, uh, and what, then how are you going to pay the mortgage? Uh, that's why I'm planning to get as much as I can and put it down on it. So that, that's my... I plan. Yeah. Well, I hate to, you know, you get, you know, I'm not charging you for this advice, but I, uh, I hope, you know, I hope you hear me real well. This is not a, a good thing to be doing. I sure. think, yeah. And, and the thing is, Paul, that, that, uh, you know, I, I wish you well with your new purchase on the home, but you want to look at your cash flow because then once you put, once you buy the house, then you got to fill it up. And, you well, know, I'll tell you one thing. We've had a couple of clients this year who have come to us in a similar situation on the rear end, we have one who came to us and we've had to give them, and, and you know, their life changed, changed suddenly. And now we have to give them the bad news. They've got nothing they can do except try and sell the house to get out because uh, just all of a sudden some things changed and that's a tough call to have to try and sell your house and get out from under it. I understand. I, it's, um, it, it, it's one of the biggest mistakes people make is getting yeah. more house than their income. Yeah, you want to maybe work with a... a a financial advisor that can help you look at the big picture. Sure. That number, if you want to call, is 872-7000. That's USA 7000 here in Raleigh. Okay, thank Thanks you. Thanks for calling. Well, that's all the Money Matters we have time for today. So we want to thank all our listeners for joining us. And for any other questions you may have, call my office during the week, and we'll set up an appointment to meet with you personally. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. And we'll be back next week on this same station at the same time. In the meantime, have a great week. And remember, your money matters because your financial future is at stake. You've been listening to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. Money Matters provides you with a personal financial hotline on any subject where money really matters. For more information, you can call Doug and Linda in Raleigh at 872-7000. That's USA 7000. Listen again next Sunday at 605 for Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis on 680 WPTF.